Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Well, last week I introduced what I called the Trilogy of Essentials for the New Believers in the Book of Acts, a study that Brian's going to start in a couple of weeks. Uh, Those people that are in that book are going to become acquainted. Um, We're going to become acquainted with them as Brian leads us through a study. Uh, And we go through the process of watching them go through the process of learning about what faith truly is and what works they must perform and how they have to love their own and those who uh, oppose them as well. Today I'm going to expand on that concept of faith to include works or good deeds. And to start with, I'm going to try to help out our slide guy back there, Jason, um, because this week's um, message really doesn't lend itself to you know, A, B, C, D. And so uh, we're going to start by just recapping last week uh, so that you'll, if you weren't here, maybe you, know, you get this... But, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I just basically want to go through it quickly so that if you weren't here, you get some idea where we're coming from. So first of all, we said last week that faith is trust or confidence that something is true. Faith is trust in the object of it. In other words, it does make a difference what the object of our faith is. Faith is obedience to the object of the faith. Once we have the proper object, we need to obey. And we discussed the fact that faith can grow or diminish. Some of us can have it in uh, a great faith at certain times and other times not so much. And so it goes up and down. And faith is sometimes a statement, a confession, a system, or a doctrine. It's a noun, in other words, instead of uh, something that is more like a verb. So now I'm going to leave Jason on his own. And he, uh, he may or may not stay up with me. That's all right. I, you know, it's my, it's on me. I didn't give him something that was real easy to follow. So, and then we'll see where, where my sermon went. Here we go. All right. I'm going to pray first. Father, I want to thank you for this good day. I want to thank you for these people here and for the opportunity that we have to consider your word to hear your spirit speaking to us, moving us. And I ask that this morning that that might be so, that we might leave here knowing that you have spoken to us and that you have called us to something. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've noticed in the many years, uh, and now actually, I could probably start saying decades. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Decades that I've been around Baptists and those who uh, are like-minded, that there are very few topics that bring out the passion in us, I have to include myself there, like the topic that we're going to look at today. Just say the the words, good works, and the hackles go up on the back of the neck. Just suggest in any kind of way that any good deed can be of any merit and the figurative fists are raised and the fighting stance is taken, right? We stand our ground. 
Well, one of the main passages we're going to give, be referencing this morning is from the book of James. Now, the book of James, I love it. It's really one of my favorite books in the scriptures, but it hasn't always been well received by other people. Now, the great Martin Luther, great reformist, reformation leader, had this to say about the book of James, and I'm going to quote him. We should throw the epistle of James out of this school, for it doesn't amount to much. It contains not a syllable about Christ. Not once does it mention Christ except at the beginning. I maintain that some Jew wrote it who probably heard about Christian people but never encountered any. Since he heard that Christians place great weight on faith in Christ, he thought, wait a moment, I'll oppose them and urge works alone. And this he did. End quote. Well, we must recognize that Luther was a man, not God. He wasn't even an apostle. And in this case, he was blatantly wrong. So by God's power, we still have the book of James in Scripture. And since it's there, we need to give due credit. And we need to look at it as a word from God and consider what he had to say through us, to us through that. And we'd be well to uh, not be like Luther, who overreacted, in my opinion, because he was so single-minded in his quest to purify the church that he wouldn't entertain a topic that simply shared a few words with the adversary at that time, the Roman Catholic Church. Instead, let's lower our fists, take a breath, and hear what God has to say through his servant James. Now, having said that, I'm going to pause and take a little side trip. Not that I'm afraid to address it. I just realized this week that there's something else I probably need to address first. See, James is going to talk about faith without works. And I think that you got to get this in your head here. Faith without works. But what about works without faith? You say, well, wait a minute, Tom, you just turn the words around. It's the same thing. No, it's not. Faith, having faith without works is one thing, but having works without faith is completely different. And what do we do with that? Well, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, what is good work? And for that, I reference Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. 
Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The first thing I want to take note of here is that Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. If we go to uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, where we see the same uh, incident recorded, uh, Matthew records that the young man actually said, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So he uses the word good twice. But both of them, we see Jesus basically saying, why are you talking to me about what is good? Only God is good. Now, the Greek word, which, of course, the scriptures were written in Greek, the Greek word for good means something a little bit different. It's, uh, it can be used to mean useful, pleasant, happy, excellent, honorable. But the Jews of that day, the Hebrew speakers of that day, did not use the word good like the Greeks did. They used it very sparingly. They never would have referred to another person as good because only God is good. And so Jesus rightly, rightfully asked him, why are you calling me good? And it's not that Jesus was denying that he was good. He just simply wanted the young man to understand what he was saying because, you know, it's like that, that movie, The Princess Bride, you know, where the guy keeps saying inconceivable and finally Inigo Montoya says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> It's the same thing here. You know, I don't think you understand what the word good means, young man. And he's trying to get him to think it through. Now, the American use of good is quite different from what the Hebrews, how the Hebrews used it. We use good so generally. I mean, you know, a pie can taste good. You know, your kitchen can smell good. Your dog can do something good, you know, and you give them kudos for it, you know. Your kid can do good things. We use good for all kinds of stuff. But that's not the way it was in their time. But so we have to recognize that what the young man was saying was very unusual. Uh, by the way, words change, right? And, and the, even though the rabbis... I insisted on keeping the word good to apply to God alone. Later on, like by the fourth century, they even started loosening up. So the Hebrew word good started meaning more general things. So we don't have the same um, application of that word today as we did back then. So but what we need to do is just simply understand what it meant when, when this young man said it. And here's the context of that. You look at Psalm 14. First three verses, it says, there is no God, excuse me, there is no God, they are corrupt. I, I skipped the first verse, and so it doesn't sound good. The fool says in his heart. <laughs> the fool also leaves out the first verse. <laughs> the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. 
The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Goodness in their eyes belong to God and God alone. And so in Genesis, we see God making uh, the, the earth and he pauses and he says, it is good because it is something that he did. It's a functional good, okay? Now we know, and I want to emphasize, I'm going to emphasize this a couple of times so that there's absolutely no doubt when you walk out of here what I think or what I believe. We know that there is no quality or quantity of good works that can result in pleasing God or gaining salvation. And there's, there's several places I could go to. I just pick out two, Galatians 2.16, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. But our good works done without faith to be condemned, ridiculed, praised, rewarded, impeded, nurtured? How are we supposed to look at good deeds that are done by people who have no faith? Well, I, ask, I pose another question to be considered. Is the desire to do good deeds a part of us being made in the image of God? Is there something within us naturally that recognizes that there is right and wrong. While we recognize that everyone has a sin nature that can only be overcome by being justified by the free gift of God, don't we also possess the general knowledge about God, as, as Paul tells us in Romans 1.20? And isn't there a, an overriding influence of the Holy Spirit in society, as I believe Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.7? Now, if you're a true Baptist, at this point, you should be shouting at me. What about total depravity? <laughs> no? Nobody wants to do that? <laughs> well, that's fine. I believe in total depravity. It's just that, again, it's like, you know, I don't think you think the word, I don't think the word means what you think it means. A lot of people don't understand total depravity. So what does it not mean? Well, total depravity does not mean that everyone is as evil as they can be 100% of the time. That's not the idea behind total depravity. That would be what we might term utter depravity. Total depravity means that every part of us is affected by sin. It doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we can be or that we don't have a conscience or that we can't appreciate truth or order or beauty. It do, uh, nor does it mean that an unsaved person is incapable of doing something good. Now, wait a minute, didn't I just say that nobody is good except God? Yeah, but that was using the Hebrew word good. Now I'm using the English word good. There's a difference, okay? I have to communicate to you in our language. So when I say good, I mean it in the sense that we all understand it, okay? Except when I'm reading uh, passages from Scripture where it has a specific meaning. Now, if you don't like that, then you're going to have to turn to in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And just before verse 25, 
get your markers out and scratch out the, the heading of that section. Because I'm pretty sure in just about all your Bibles, right there, it's going to say something about the good Samaritan. And Jesus never called him good. Jesus said he was a neighbor. He never used the word good. But what was he implying? <laughs> As we translate into our language, he was implying the Samaritan did some good things that these other people should have done. Good as we define good. Okay, not as, as uh, he defined good in Mark 10. So just because a good work is useless in regards to gaining salvation doesn't mean it's useless in regards to helping another person. The young man obeyed all the commandments. He did all the right things. The only thing he was lacking was faith. And that was demonstrated by his misapplication of the adjective good to the teacher whom he ended up not trusting as divine. He called him good, but when it came to trusting the object of his faith, he wouldn't obey him. You know, uh, Paul, who uh, a lot of people pit Paul against James. They say, well, you know, uh, and Luther was one of these. He's, you know, Luther was real big on all the things that Paul wrote, but he didn't like James because he thought James was saying something different, even opposite of what Paul said. Well, listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, but sincerely, or excuse me, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. He's saying there's people out there who are preaching the gospel who don't even believe the gospel. The only reason that they're preaching it is because they're trying to make things worse for me. The only reason they're preaching it is because they're trying to stir things up. And how does he answer that? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So evil people with evil purpose, evil intent, are doing something good. You can't say preaching the gospel is not good. They're out there doing something good, but it's all out of wrong motives. They're not saved, but they're doing something good. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 23 has this, uh, quote from Jesus where he, he's got, uh, he says, many people are going to call, call upon me uh, trying to enter the kingdom. But he says, uh, many of them are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Aren't those all good things? They're saying, haven't we done good things, Lord? And then he says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Evildoers, even though they're doing good things, 
They're evildoers because they were depending on those good things to win favor. Works without faith. Good people do good, but are still spending eternity in hell. Why? Because they lack faith. They're doing it for the wrong purpose. Now, God uses apparently good people and even evil people to accomplish his purpose throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't take long to get into the Old Testament to find out that there are a lot of bad people back there. But a lot of them did some good things. I'm not going to go through them all, but Saul, Hezekiah, uh, uh, most of the kings, you know, you look, there were 39 kings of Israel and Judah, and only eight of them were considered maybe good out of 39. And yet they all did things that were helpful for God's people. Well, most of them. I'll say there are a couple that were just utterly depraved. Uh, so they fell, but they fell short of completely obeying God. So some of them had their moments. They had their good moments. You know, God raised up, God raised up an evil kingdom, Babylon, to accomplish his purpose in disciplining his people Israel. And then he raises up another evil empire, Persia, to discipline Babylon. <laughs> God uses non-Christians. God uses unbelievers. God uses evil people sometimes to accomplish his purpose. Paul agrees with that in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12. He, he pretty much quotes uh, uh, Psalm 14 that we read earlier. There's none righteous, no one does good, not one. And yet, common experience demonstrates that most people do some good. I mean, you can all think of maybe experiences you've had or things you've seen or things you've read where there have been, you know, acts of heroism, where people have, have done things to save other people or to help other people. There are lots of quiet, law-abiding citizens, people who value honesty and integrity and kindness. John Calvin, who was the big proponent of total depravity, even he recognized that there, those people exist. And he uh, coined a term, civil righteousness. It wasn't that they could be saved by doing these things. It's just that they were righteous in a civil sense, not in a spiritual sense. So you can keep the law like the rich young ruler did, and, but without faith, it's not going to do you any good. And don't forget that we see in 1 Samuel 16, 7 that man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. No way that I can tell why any of you are doing what you're doing. Only God knows for sure. So, though all humans are capable of doing good things, only those done with a pure heart, acquired by being made new by the grace of God, are profitable for spirituality. So, let's move on to what I really want to get to, and that is faith without works. The first place we see this in... Uh, 
in James is in the first chapter. But the very first point I want to make, again, and very important, is that James is writing to who? Believers. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who are claiming to have been made new by the grace of God. He's not writing about other people. He's writing about believers. Very important as we read this. He begins in chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word or so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So it's like I get up in the morning, very first thing I go, I look in the mirror and my hair is all, I mean, you can tell I've been sleeping on it weird, okay? And, uh, that, you know, I probably already had breakfast and I might have a little egg yolk and cotton in my beard, you know. And I might still have my nose strip on, you know, I haven't taken it off. And, but I walk away from the mirror and I completely forget what I just looked at in the mirror. And so I walk out in public. <laughs> well, that's what James says. It's like when you come to church or you go to a Bible study or you attend a small group and you listen to the word of God and you're convicted by the word of God and then you leave the building and you forget everything you just heard and you just go on living the way you want to live. The section that should really, truly convict us is in chapter 2, starting at verse 14. If you have your Bibles, it'd be good for you to look there and, and mark it up. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, that's pretty interesting. I believe what James is saying here is he's questioning their salvation. He's saying, you're claiming to have saving faith, but I don't think it's the same thing. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Boom! Ow! That's what really set off Luther. 
Oh, my goodness, I can just see him now. No, he says. You're saved, justified by faith alone. And James is saying, no, that's not all. Considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You see, the problem was that Luther was so singularly focused on one aspect of justification by faith that he let things like seeing the same words, good works, set him off about things like this. But not that Luther was off base, by the way. He was, he was addressing a very real problem with the Roman Catholic Church. And I just want to mention, you know, they called it the Reformation because the idea was to reform the church, not get rid of it. They wanted to reform it. They wanted, wanted to bring it back to what it ought to be. And one of the things that he was really uh, triggered by was this idea that the church could come to people and say, if you want to be considered, you know, pleasing to God, then you have to do something good. You have to do some good work. And here's how it would go. It was called specifically the selling of indulgences. And I'm going to give you a very simplistic view of that. I know it's simplistic, but you know, that, I think it'll suffice for, for what we're talking about today. So the Pope or maybe one of the priests would, uh, would uh, be available and you would go to the priest and you would say, uh, you know, I'm really concerned because I've been a bad person my whole life. And I'm getting close to where I think I might be dying here soon. And uh, I really would like to get to heaven. And so like the rich young man that came to Jesus, they say to the priest, what must I do <laughs> to be saved? And the answer, unfortunately, came back as the priest is thinking about the leaky roof on the church. Uh, well, here's what you can do. You can offer us your skills at fixing the roof on the church. You do that, I'll put in a good word for you with God. And you'll be just a little bit closer to heaven. Or, uh, as happened quite often, Pope is planning uh, some sort of a war. Yeah, they did that. It wasn't all spiritual stuff. Planning some sort of a battle, some sort of a war with some kingdom that was uh, giving them trouble. And uh, you could... Well, if you give some money to support uh, raising up some troops, then, uh, you know, we could, we could put in a good word for you. Or you might come to the priest and say, you know, I, my uncle died a couple of years ago, and he wasn't a very good guy. I'm pretty sure he's not in heaven. What can I do to get him to heaven? Because right now he's sitting in a place called purgatory waiting to get to heaven, and there's nothing that, you know, somebody else has to do something. You can't do anything once you're in purgatory. And so the priest would say, well, once again... Uh, you can give some money. You know, you can do something to help out the church and then we'll credit it to your uncle and get him a little bit closer to getting out of there. This was the kind of thing that riled Martin Luther. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. But he became so singularly focused on that that just hearing the word good deeds, I think, set him off. And so James... Uh, you know, come on. You can just picture Martin Luther reading the book of James, and uh, I'm sure that there was uh, some anger being expressed. 
Well, let's see what does James actually mean in this passage. First of all, I want to go back once again to acknowledge and to remind you that James is talking to people who claim to be believers, right? He's not talking to the general world. That's very important to understand that. Secondly, he questions the very definition of faith. If a person claims to have faith in Jesus, yet he demonstrates no evidence that his heart has changed, that his mind has been renewed, that he is participating in the, in the divine grace, in the divine nature, then James questions whether their definition is the same as God's. He's questioning the very salvation of these people. If they're truly saved with a new nature, there will be changes in their behavior, not because there has to be, but because they want to change. That's the big difference, isn't it? Instead of going to, to somebody and saying, what do I have to do to be saved? We should be asking, what can I do now that I am saved? Because I want to bring glory and honor to God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian martyr under Hitler's fascist regime. And he, he wrote about something he called cheap grace. Other people have called it easy believism, which is also um, quite descriptive. But his point was that many so-called believers were not actually saved. That they had so cheapened the grace of God by asserting that simply believing the gospel and being good people was enough. But Bonhoeffer argued that that kind of faith was no faith at all. He and James would have gotten along just fine. Because that's what James is writing about. Now last week, I spoke about... Oh boy. <laughs> all right. Technology here. So last week, uh, you know, I, I uh, spoke about how important it is to distinguish belief from faith. Belief in its simplest definition doesn't require any action. The demons believe, but they don't do anything about it, right? They don't do anything to show that they not only believe, but accept who God is and serve him. So it doesn't require any action. Faith, however, requires a response of obedience to the proper object of our faith. So James is writing to these people. And he says, you have the ability to help people as a representative of God. You have the opportunity to be God's hands and feet in helping these people who are in need. And he's probably particularly speaking about other believers, by the way. But all you do is offer platitudes and well wishes, and they don't help at all. In verse 18, he anticipated that some may argue that faith is one thing, works is another. You know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. And he's having none of that. He rejects that idea completely. Works done without faith are useless, self-centered efforts to gain favor with God. Faith, on the other hand, will necessarily result in good works as we seek to obey God, as we seek to live out that new life that we've been given. 
Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. What a gem that is. I love that. Show me your faith without anything, without any evidence. You can't. You can't. How can anybody demonstrate that kind of a concept without showing something? I mean, you gotta, if you're going to have an emotion, I don't know what your emotion is unless you show me by body language, right? John Newton was known for discovering gravity when apple fell on his head while he was sitting beneath an apple tree contemplating life. Well, that's what he's known for. It's not really the right story, but uh, something, something happened and, and Newton actually did uh, use the idea of an apple falling straight down and to come up with the idea that every point mass attracts every other point mass by a force acting along the line intersecting the two points. The force is proportional to the product of the two masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. You get, you get it? <laughs> oh, yeah. You think, well, maybe. <laughs> Could be true. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So we might rightly ask Newton, show me. Right? You say this is true. Basically, what he was saying was every object has its own gravity. Show me. I, you know, I, why would I believe you without some proof? Well, he couldn't. Fortunately, 100 years later, another guy, Charles Augustine de Colombe, did build an apparatus and demonstrated Newton's theory. He put the faith that Newton had that this was true and into works showed how it actually worked. Nobody can show me their faith by doing nothing. But I can show you my faith by doing plenty. Simply believing doesn't constitute faith. Verses 20 through 25, James offers up examples of people who demonstrated their faith by their actions. And we can find many more in the book of Hebrews. And I'm not going to read the whole uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews. I mentioned it last week. But let me go through and just highlight a few. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. I want you to see that what James is, is saying is, is true here in, in Hebrews, that these people who had faith did something about it. Cain brought God a better offering than, uh, excuse me, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Uh, Noah, by faith, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking about the country they'd left, they would have 
had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones because he knew that God was going to be true to his promise. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if on dry land. I want you to tell me, do you think you stand in there and you see this water party? Are you ready to go down there? I think I'd hesitate a little bit. So we have all these people. He says, uh, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins and destitute and persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the grounds. They were all commended for their faith. And yet, what do we hear about? What they did. You know, I think it's interesting that in, back in Mark chapter 10, when the rich young man comes to Jesus and uh, he tells him, well, uh, you know, you, you need to obey these commandments. And he says, I've done all those. What does Jesus then tell him to do? He says, go do one more thing. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, have faith. There's one thing you lack, young man, faith. You need to have faith. No, he says, one thing you need to do, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Why would Jesus say that? Does Jesus think that you can earn your salvation by doing good things? Of course not. It's just that he knew that if the young man had faith, he would do that. He was showing him that he didn't have the faith that he thought he did. Now, you're sitting there, I'm sure some of you anyway, thinking, when's he going to get around to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Huh? Is he just going to ignore Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Have I said it enough? You got that in your head here? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I should read it. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Of course, that's absolutely true. Absolutely. Grace, which means gift, is that gift that God gives us of eternal life. And it's a gift from God. We all agree with that. I hope we all do. <laughs> I hope that's something that we'll never, ever flinch on. Well, wait a minute. How does James fit in here then? I mean, come on, not by works so that no one can boast? So you're all very familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. How familiar are you with Ephesians 2, 10? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's all James is saying. He's agreeing with Paul. If we are saved by grace through faith, then we have work to do, work that God has called us to do. Feed the poor, care for the sick, the orphans, the widows, visit the brethren in prison, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, build up one another in love. It goes on and on and on. There's all kinds of things that God has for us to do because we are his children, because we are his mouthpieces, because we are his hands and his feet. So the question that I leave you with today is what is God calling you to do? You've already received the free gift of eternal life. You've already been adopted as a child of God. You've already in line to inherit the kingdom. Your heart has been made new. Your mind is being renewed. Your body will be raised up on the last day and you will spend the rest of eternity in God's presence. But what are you going to do in the meantime? What is he calling you to do while you're still living in this world? How will you demonstrate your faith? by your actions. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your servant, James, and for Paul, those who were able to write down for us the things that we are never to forget. We ask, Father, that as you speak to each heart today, that you would show each of us how we can best serve you, because that's what we want to do, because we love you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.